Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Revolution, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. Here's Pastor Nick. If this is the foundation of your marriage, more than kids, more than physical attraction, more than financial stability, if spiritual friendship is the foundation of your marriage, you and your spouse are standing side by side, looking to Jesus, pursuing Jesus, serving Jesus, then that is an incredibly strong foundation for a marriage because the gospel, unlike so many other factors in life, the gospel never changes. See, your kids will move out, you'll both get older and less attractive, Uh, Your hobbies and interests will change with time. But if this is the foundation, that's incredibly solid. And that's why the Bible says that the only proper foundation for Christian marriage is this idea of spiritual friendship. And so that's what we seek to encourage people towards here, by the way, at Whitefields. But let me say this. This is certainly not just about marriage. It's 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 about this. The gospel gives us something worth living for something worth living for that is so powerful that it supersedes all cultural and social boundaries that generally tend to separate people. See, this is what brings Aristarchus and Secundus together from opposite ends of society. They've both found in the gospel something worth living for, something that moves them, something that motivates them. They see in it a truth and a hope that is more powerful than the things which ever separated them. That's what makes Philemon and Onesimus become brothers. You see, did you know this, that Christianity is the most diverse religion culturally and racially in the world? Really. Every other major faith has 80% or more of its adherents on one or two continents. Christianity, on the other hand, has roughly 20% of all its adherents across six continents. Maybe five. I might be leaving Australia out. So I wrote it down here. So Christianity has 20% of its adherents in Africa. 20% of Christians are in South America. A little bit less than 20% of Christians are in Asia. And a little bit more than 20% are in Europe and North America each. No other religion can even come close to the cultural diversity of Christianity. Most people even in our society, in all societies, they have friends and relationships generally, mostly, with people who are a lot like them. People who are of similar age, similar stage in life, similar, uh, you know, financial status, culture, etc. But one of the things that is so unique about the gospel and has been ever since the earliest days of Christianity is that it makes you friends with people you would never otherwise be friends with. Like Aristarchus and Secundus, the the nobleman and the slave, they're both living for the same thing. They're pursuing the same mission, and that brings them together, even though they're from opposite ends of the social spectrum. So Jesus Christ creates unity and even friendship across barriers that generally separate people. And the reason for that is because the gospel is the great equalizer. Do you see that? That the gospel message is this, that every one of us, every single one of us, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, the gospel brings all of us low, but then, of course, it only to raise us up again, but it brings us down to the same level, and it gives us no room for boasting or thinking that any of us is better than anyone else. We're all in the same boat. We all stand on the same level ground before the cross, and the only hope for all of us is the promise of the gospel that because Jesus took your place, 
the innocent giving his life for the guilty in order to redeem you, that that is our only hope. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. But the other reason why the gospel creates unity and even friendship across barriers that generally separate people is because the gospel gives us something worth living for, a mission to glorify God, to be his ambassadors, to be heralds of his love, to be heralds of redemption and salvation in this world. So I encourage you, pursue that. And find other people who are pursuing that and pursue it together. That's the basis for Christian community. And we would love to help you do that. We do love to help you do that here at Whitefields. That's one of our goals as a church, by the way, is to build and facilitate that kind of community. Aristarchus and Secundus, natural enemies who love each other for Christ's sake. They now have something to live for, something greater than any difference they might have ever had. So that brings us to our second thing that we see here in this section as sleeping in church. So please read with me from verse 6 again. We sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now I just want to make this point. I got a map here again for you. And notice once again, the author, Luke, he changes from talking about they did this, they did that. Now he again begins using the pronoun we. And uh, if you kind of look at the whole book and kind of put this all together, here's what we see. Back in chapter 16, Luke was traveling, the author of this book was traveling with Paul, and he's talking in the first person, you know, we were doing this. And then when they came to Philippi, then the language changed, then they went on. And the picture you get is that Luke stayed in Philippi. After they planted the church there, it seems that Luke stayed in that city to be part of that fledgling congregation, perhaps even to be the leader of that congregation. And now as Paul passes through Philippi on his way down to Ephesus again, Luke joins up with him, joins the crew again. So we see now what we're going to read next is a firsthand eyewitness account, something which the author, Luke, saw himself uh, with his own two eyes. So from verse 7. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome with sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Wow. See, that's what you get for sleeping in church. This is what it comes down to. Now, the first thing to notice here before I really harp on people who sleep in church, because really, I've been waiting to teach this section for a long time, all right? So before we get to that, let me just say this. Notice first it says that the Christians were gathered on the first day of the week, the first day of the week, of course, being Sunday. And remember, at this time, and for several hundred years of Christianity, up until the time of Constantine, actually before Constantine became a Christian, he made Sunday a holiday throughout the Roman Empire in which people didn't work. But prior to that, so that's 300-something years, 300 years of Christianity, Sunday was a work day, but it was also the day when people gathered together as Christians to take the Lord's Supper, take the sacrament, and to hear the teaching of the Word and to pray together. So what it means is this, that historically uh, what would happen is that Christians uh, would get up before they went to work on Sundays. We read about in church history, you know, you read ancient documents or even writings about Christians from people who aren't Christians, and they describe this. They said that the Christians would gather before sunrise. You imagine some of these people, slaves, 
slaves. They got to be at work first thing in the morning. So Christians would gather before sunrise to have their service, and they would celebrate on Sunday, which is, you know, you think about the first day of the week, the day after the last day. This is the day of new beginnings. That's what it represents. But it's also the day on which Jesus rose from the dead. And so they would gather together before sunrise to take communion, to sing together, and to hear teaching from the Bible. You see, interestingly, what we do here is not really all that different. If you were to get in a time machine and bring somebody from there, from that time to here, I don't think that they would be like, what are you guys doing? You know, it'd be, it'd be fairly similar. We're still, we still have the same key elements. And so then what they would do, they'd go off to work after their morning meeting, and then they would gather again in the evening these early Christians. So early Christians, again, they didn't have Sunday off. And when I think about that, I think about how they would gather. Man, I find I'm challenged by that level of commitment and that level of desire that these people are getting up at like three in the morning, right? They're getting up before sunrise. They're going to the place of gathering. They're getting together with other Christians. They're taking communion. They're listening to the word being taught. They're singing together. Then they go off to work for eight, 10, 12 hours. And then after work, they come together again uh, in the evening. So that's what we're seeing here in Troas. We're seeing the evening meeting on the first day of the week, on Sunday. There was a gathering there of believers. They've been working all day long. And you can imagine that they must have been extremely worn out and extremely tired. And so here's Paul. And he's got a lot to say, right? Because this is the last time he's going to talk to these people ever. So he's just, he's just going for it. In my sermons, I'm really, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I have a little hobby horse about this. 38 minutes. Check it out, podcast, 38 minutes, okay? Paul's sermon, like, like five, six hours, okay? Right, right. There were probably several intermissions, potty breaks, stuff like that. Everybody's going out. I mean, six hours of teaching. This is, uh, he's teaching past midnight. And of course, in a room that's lit by lamps, lamps eating up all the oxygen in the room. People are sitting by the windows so they can get some fresh air. And this guy, Eutychus, falls asleep and he falls out of the third story window and he says he's taken up dead. So I've been milling over this passage, like I said, for, for a really long time. I've really been looking forward to this one. And, uh, and what I think the main story is this is, don't fall asleep in church or you might die. But, uh, you know, I have had people fall asleep on me before in church. It's not my favorite thing, but I realize it happens. And what I take heart about is that I realize it happens to even the best of them, right? People fell asleep during Paul's preaching. I was reading, you know, I'm reading commentaries about this. I'm reading like John Calvin, John Wesley talking about people falling asleep in their teaching. So that makes me feel a little bit better. Even the best preachers, even the apostle Paul had to deal with this. So here, check this out. John Calvin, here's how he dealt with it. You know, John Calvin in Geneva back in the day. He regularly taught for two hours on every Sunday morning. And it was kind of a running commentary is how he would teach through the Bible. And so the way that they dealt with people falling asleep is that they would, they'd have people, and it was their task, their assignment, to they would have these long sticks, you know, like a meter long, three, three feet long, long pointy sticks. And their job was to walk around the church and just stab people who fell asleep. John Calvin didn't want people sleeping in church. John Wesley you know, he would travel, teach in different places, oftentimes teaching in uh, even up to 10 different places on a Sunday. And he writes that one time he was teaching in a church and this guy fell asleep right in front of him. And so John Wesley, he started shouting, fire, fire, fire. And this guy was startled. He was like, whoa, where, where's the fire? And he says, fire of hell upon those who fall asleep in church. 
You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. So we're not quite that harsh about us sleeping in church here at Whitefields, but it has happened from time to time. And, uh, you know, a few people over the years, I remember there's this one guy who used to yawn really loudly, like just yawning, letting it go, you know? I mean, what what are you going to do? He's tired. So anyway, he's yawning. Like I'd be making some big point, like impassioned. I'm sweating. Somebody needs to hand me a hanky or something, right? And this guy's just like, yawn, you know? You know, but uh, it hasn't happened in a while. I will say this. I believe that the responsibility for staying awake in church, it's partly on the listener, but it's also part of the responsibility of the, uh, the preacher, the pastor. He has some responsibility to teach well and to bring the word of God to bear upon people's hearts in a way that's relevant, in a way that's useful. And I believe that if you do that, people aren't going to fall asleep. You see, if people get more out of your sermon by taking a nap, well then you're doing something wrong. And maybe you need to work on presenting the word of God in a way that does the word of God justice. Because here's the thing, if it's boring, it's not the Bible's fault. The Bible's not boring, you're boring, right? Like uh, if you make the Bible seem boring, that's on you, that's not on the Bible. And so I believe that's the job of a, a preacher, it's my job to present the word of God in a way that's faithful and, and faithful to God's intentions and in giving it to us and which shows how incredibly compelling it truly is. So one time here at church, I can't remember uh, if it was before service or after service, I went out to the foyer there and uh, I noticed that on the table where we have the coffee and tea, there were several boxes of sleepy time tea. Now, I was just like, how did this get here? Like, whose idea was this? You know what we need more of at church? Sleepy time tea. You know, the one with the bear? The the logo is a bear falling asleep in his chair. That's what we need at church. We should go get some more boxes of that. Like, uh, you know, the kind of tea you drink when you need to take a nap. That is the last thing we need. That's the last thing anybody needs at church. And I'm convinced this is the work of the enemy. Like, this is... This is spiritual warfare. So we got rid of the sleepy time tea, and that really has uh, resolved a lot of the problems we were having. Furthermore, I think there's also a limit to how much people can take in, right? There's a saying that says, the mind can absorb only what the seat can endure. And some pastors are guilty of that, right? They keep shoveling even after the cows are done eating, not, not to call you cows or anything. But anyway, Paul here, we understand this is his last chance to speak to these people. And he has a lot to say. And I imagine if it was my last chance speaking to you, I'd probably uh, speak a little longer than usual. Nonetheless, after a long day's work, candles burning up all the oxygen in the room, well into the fourth hour of listening to Paul speak, it might have been the best sermon in the world, but it doesn't matter. Despite his best efforts to stay awake and God bless him for wanting to be there, even though he was tired, uh, Eutychus, he falls asleep and he topples down from the third story window. So sleeping in church isn't good. As we see in our story, it can be hazardous for your health. health. But let me tell you this. There's something which is much worse than sleeping in church. The Bible says that there are many people who essentially, they may be awake in church, but they sleepwalk through life. 
They're sleepwalking through life. And let me tell you this, I'd rather that you get a nice refreshing nap during my sermon than that you sleepwalk through your life. Paul describes this in several places. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Awake, you who sleep, awake and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See, a metaphor of sleep, the idea of sleepwalking through life. Think about what that implies. When you're asleep, you're ignorant, you're inactive, you're unaware of what is happening around you. You're alive in the sense that your, your heart is beating, your lungs are moving, but you're not really living. Everything about you is suppressed when you're asleep. And this is the metaphor for what it means to be spiritually dead. Your body's alive, but you're not really living. You're asleep to God, and you need to be woken up. You see, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. He came to make those who sleep come awake. And if that's you, if that's me, we, we all, that was our base situation. We were spiritually dead. We were asleep, sleepwalking through life, but Jesus came to make us alive, to wake us up. See, there's something much worse than sleeping in church, and that is sleepwalking through life. That's much more dangerous than sleeping in church. And then he, Paul, he takes this metaphor a little further in his letter to the Thessalonians. And he says that there are some people who are Christians. In other words, they've been awakened from their sleepwalking through life. But yet, even though they're Christians and they should be awakened in Christ, in their hearts and in their minds, practically they're living as if they were asleep. He says this to the Thessalonians, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Charles Spurgeon once spoke on this topic, and he used three very powerful pictures to describe the tragedy of the sleeping Christian. The first example he used, he said, it's like a city that's struck by the plague. People are dying. They're wheeling those wooden carts down the street and the coroner's saying, you know, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. And yet the whole time, there's a doctor in the city who has the cure for the plague in his pocket, but where is he? He's asleep. People are dying and the doctor's asleep and he says, you know, what do you want to do? You want to go to that man's house, bang on the door, say, wake up. The second example he uses, he says, it's like a passenger ship that is in the midst of a storm and it's being dashed to pieces. It's about to be dashed to pieces against the rocks. And what's the captain of the ship doing? He's sleeping. He says the third example, he says, it's like a prisoner on death row about to be led off to execution. He's being led down the long corridor to his death. And all the while, there's a man who has a letter of pardon for this condemned man. The letter is in his pocket. But what is that man doing? He's in another room sleeping. What a tragedy that is. But that's the picture, he says, of a Christian who is sleepwalking through life. And so let me ask you today, is that you? Do you need to come awake? Have you been sleepwalking through life? Have you been the sleeping Christian? You've been alive technically, but you're just inactive. Or maybe there are some of you, you've never really come awake to God before. And today's the day that you need to do that. I would encourage you, don't brush that off. Perhaps that's the very reason you're here today. That's the very reason you're hearing this message today because that's what God wants to speak to you about. But let's read on from verse 10. Paul went down and bent over him, bent over Eutychus, and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. 
And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So Eutychus, he's seriously injured to the point of death and then he's raised to life. This is a miracle. Luke saw it with his own eyes. He was there firsthand. Now I remember listening to one of my mentors talk about this story of Eutychus and how you know Eutychus died and, and as he died, his soul would have been departing his body and going to heaven. And then Paul comes and prays for him and then Eutychus comes back to life. And he says, yeah, well, that's comforting for those people, but what a bummer for Eutychus, right? I mean, here he is, seeing the light, going towards the light, this close to being in heaven, and then he gets yanked back down to earth. Like, what a bummer. And this mentor of mine, he said, if I'm ever dying, don't you dare do that to me. I'm going to be so mad at you if you do that. I cannot wait to be in heaven. If I'm on my way, don't you dare try and bring me back. But here's the thing. Paul and these other Christians, they knew without a doubt that if Eutychus dies, he's going to heaven, right? So why bother praying for him? Why restore him to life? Why not like the mentor of mine that I was talking about? Why not just let him go, right? Let him uh, enjoy and rejoice that he's in heaven. But here's why. Because there was still something worth living for. Don't let Eutychus die prematurely. He's still got something to live for. Paul talked about this same desire, this desire in his heart in his letter to the Philippians, this idea of being torn between two desires. On the one hand, wanting to go to heaven and leave this world behind, and yet the knowledge that God has something more for you here, a plan and a call for your life that you get to live out for his glory. Here's what Paul says. He says, for me, to live is Christ and to die, that's gain. Uh, and I don't know which one I should choose. If, I'm, if I live in the flesh, it means fruitful labor to me. I don't know which I should choose. I'm hard-pressed. My desire is, on the one hand, to depart and be with Christ. That's far better than this. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. He says, finally, he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He's saying, I'm torn. On the one hand, I, I want to just be done with this life and go to heaven. Remember, Paul's writing his letter to the Philippians from jail. So you can imagine it was even more stark in his mind. I'd love to be done with all this stuff, man. I'd love to just be out of this place. But on the other hand, I know that God hasn't left me here for no reason. I know that God has a plan and a calling for my life that I can live out for his glory and for the betterment of other people. That's something worth living for. And it's been said, find something worth dying for and then live for it. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us something worth living for because it says that God not only wants to save you, but God also wants to use your life for his purposes of bringing love and redemption and salvation to the world and into people's lives. Eutychus, we know you're gonna go to heaven when you die, but don't die yet. You've got something to live for. God has a calling on your life, Eutychus, to use you for his purposes. Do you know this, that the same is true for you? God has a plan. God has a purpose. God has a calling on your life. He has ways that he wants to use you and use you to do his work. There's something worth living for. He died so that we might live for eternity and so that you might live, so that you might be part of his work of redemption in the places he has planted you. We're gonna continue next week looking at what I think is one of the best passages, not only in this entire book, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. So don't miss that. But for today, I will close by saying this. There is nothing else more worthy of giving your whole life for than giving your life to him who gave his life for you. Don't sleepwalk through this life. 
God has a calling on your life. He's calling you to follow him, to serve him, to glorify him, to do his work in the world. If you've been asleep, it's time for you to wake up. It's time for you to arise and live full-heartedly for him. Maybe you've never come awake to God before. Or maybe you have and you've fallen asleep. Let me tell you today, now is the time to awake. There's something worth living for. Would you please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for this message of the gospel. Lord, we thank you that the message of the gospel, Lord, is that we are more sinful, we're more broken than we even realize, than we can even know about ourselves. But Lord, thank you for this message of the gospel that in spite of that, Lord, you love us more than we could ever dare to dream, dare dare to imagine. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you, Lord, that the gospel brings us low only to raise us up and show us how loved we are and how cared cared for we are by you. Thank you, Lord, that you would give up everything to save us. Lord, may we live for you as you live for us. Lord, we ask that you would use our lives and you would help us, Lord, any of us who have been sleeping, Lord, to come awake today. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com. 